If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Book 4, Chapters 3 and 4 of The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 3 The Dead Spy Throughout this furious and rapid passage, Lawless had looked on helplessly, and even when all was over, and Dick, already re-arisen to his feet, was listening with the most passionate attention to the distant bustle in the lower stories of the house, the old outlaw was still wavering on his legs like a shrub in a breeze of wind, and still stupidly staring on the face of the dead man. It is well, said Dick at length, they have not heard us. Praise the saints. But now, what shall I do with this poor spy? At least... I will take my tassel from his wallet. So saying, Dick opened the wallet. Within, he found a few pieces of money, the tassel, and a letter addressed to Lord Wensleydale and sealed with my Lord Shoreby's seal. The name awoke Dick's recollection and he instantly broke the wax and read the contents of the letter. It was short, but, to Dick's delight, it gave evident proof that Lord Shoreby was treacherously corresponding with the House of York. The young fellow usually carried his ink horn and implements about him, and so now, Bending a knee beside the body of the dead spy, he was able to write these words upon a corner of the paper. My lord of Shoreby, ye that writ the letter, what ye why your man is dead, but let me read you 
marry not. John amend all. He laid his paper on the breast of the corpse, and then Lawless, who had been looking on upon these last manoeuvres, with some flickering returns of intelligence, suddenly drew a black arrow from his robe, and therewith pinned the paper in its place. The sight of this disrespect, or, as it almost seemed, cruelty to the dead, drew a cry of horror from young Shelton. But the old outlaw only laughed. Nay, I will have the credit for mine order, he hiccuped. My jolly boys must have the credit, Aunt. The credit, brother. And then, shutting his eyes tight and opening his mouth like a presenter, he began to thunder in a formidable voice. If ye should drink the clary wine. Peace, sot, cried Dick, and thrust him hard against the wall. In two words and a merry name, begone out of this house, where, if ye continue to abide, ye will not only hang yourself, but me also. Faith, then, up foot, be ya, or, by the mass, I may forget that I am in some sort your captain, and in some your debtor. Go. The sham monk was now, in some degree, recovering the use of his intelligence, and the ring in Dick's voice, and the glitter in Dick's eye, stamped home the meaning of his words. By the mass, cried Lawless, an I be not wanted, I can go and he turned tipsily along the corridor and proceeded to flounder down the stairs, lurching against the wall. So soon as he was out of sight, Dick returned to his hiding place, resolutely fixed to see the matter out. Wisdom, indeed, moved him to be gone, but love and curiosity were stronger. Time passed slowly for the young man, bolt upright behind the arras. The fire in the room began to die down, and the lamp to burn low and to smoke, and still there was no word of the return of anyone to these upper quarters of the house. Still the faint hum and clatter of the supper party sounded from far below, and still, under the thick fall of the snow, Shoreby Town lay silent upon every side. At length, however, feet and voices began to draw near upon the stair, and presently, 
after several of Sir Daniel's guests arrived upon the landing, and, turning down the corridor, beheld the torn arras and the body of the spy. Some ran forward and some ran back, and all together began to cry aloud. At the sound of their cries, guests, men-at-arms, ladies, servants, and, in a word, all the inhabitants of that great house came flying from every direction and began to join their voices to the tumult. Soon a way was cleared, and Sir Daniel came forth in person, followed by the bride's groom of the morrow, my Lord Shoreby. My Lord, said Sir Daniel, have I not told you of this knave, Black Arrow? To the proof, behold it, there it stands, and by the rood, my gossip, is a man of yours, or one that stole your colours. In good suit, it was a man of mine, replied Lord Shoreby, hanging back. I would I had more such. He was keen as a beagle, and secret as a mole. I gossip, truly, asked Sir Daniel keenly. And what came he smelling up so many stairs in my poor mansion? But he will smell no more. And please you, Sir Daniel, said one. Here is a paper written upon with some matter, pinned upon his breast. Give it me, arrow and all, said the knight, and when he had taken into his hand the shaft, he continued for some time to gaze upon it in sullen musings. I, he said, addressing Lord Shoreby, here is a hate that followeth hard and close upon my heels. This black stick, or its just likeness, shall yet bring me down. And, gossip, suffer a plain knight to counsel you. And if these hounds begin to wind you, flee. Tis like a sickness. It still hangeth, hangeth upon the limbs. But let us see what they have written. It is as I thought, my lord. Ya marked, like an old oak, by the woodman. Tomorrow or next day, by will come the axe. But what wrote ye in a letter? Lord Shoreby snatched the paper from the arrow, read it, crumpled it between his hands and overcoming the reluctance which had hitherto withheld him from approaching, threw himself on his knees beside the body, and eagerly groped in the wallet. He rose to his feet with a somewhat 
unsettled countenance. Gossip, he said. I have indeed lost a letter here that much imported. And could I lay my hand upon the knave that took it? He should incontinently grace a halter. But let us, first of all, secure the issues of the house. Here is enough harm already by St. George. The sentinels were posted close around the house and the garden, a sentinel on every landing of the stair, a whole troop in the main entrance hall, and yet another about the bonfire in the shed. Sir Daniel's followers were supplemented by Lord Shoreby's. There was thus no lack of men or weapons to make the house secure, or to entrap a lurking enemy, should one be there. Meanwhile, the body of the spy was carried out through the falling snow and deposited in the abbey church. It was not until these dispositions had been taken, and all had returned to a decorous silence, that the two girls drew Richard Shelton from his place of concealment, and made a full report to him of what had happened. He, upon his side, recounted the visit of the spy, his dangerous discovery, and speedy end. Joanna leaned back very faint against the curtain wall. It will avail but little, she said. I shall be wed tomorrow, in the morning, after all. What? cried her friend. And here is our paladin that driveth lions like mice. Ye have little faith of a surety. But come, friend lion driver, give us some comfort. Speak, and let us hear bold counsel. Dick was confounded to be thus outfaced with his own exaggerated words. But though he coloured, he still spoke stoutly. True, said he, we are in straits. Yet, could I but win out of this house for half an hour, I do honestly tell myself that all might still go well, and for the marriage it should be prevented. And for the lions, mimicked the girl, they shall be driven. I crave your excuse, said Dick. I speak now not in any boasting humour, but rather as one inquiring after help or counsel, for if I get not forth of this house and through these sentinels, I can do less than naught. Take me, I pray you, rightly. Why said ye he was rustic, Joan? The girl inquired. 
I warrant he hath a tongue in his head. Ready, soft, and bold is he in speech at pleasure. What would ye more? Nay, sighed Joanna with a smile. They have changed me, my friend Dick. Tis sure enough, when I beheld him, he was rough indeed. But it matters little. There is no help for my hard case, and I must still be Lady Shoreby. Nay, then, said Dick. I will even make the adventure. A friar is not much regarded, and if I found a good fairy to lead me up, I may find another belike to carry me down. How call they the name of this spy? Rutter, said the young lady, and an excellent good name to call him by. But how mean ye, lion driver? What is your mind to do? To offer boldly to go forth, returned Dick, and if any stop me, to keep an unchanged countenance and say I go to pray for Rutter. They will be praying over his poor clay even now. This device is somewhat simple, replied the girl, yet it may hold. Nay, said young Shelton, it is no device, but mere boldness, which serveth often better in great straits. Ye say true, she said. Well, go, a Mary's name, and may heaven speed you. Ye leave here a poor maid that loves you entirely, and another that is most heartily your friend. Be wary, for their sakes, and make not shipwreck of your safety. I added Joanna. Go, Dick, ye run no more peril, whether ye go or stay. Go, ye take my heart with you, the saints defend you. Dick passed the first sentry with so assured a countenance that the fellow merely fidgeted and stared. But at the second landing, the man carried his spear across and bade him name his business. Pax verbiscum, answered Dick. I go to pray over the body of this poor rutter. Like enough, returned the sentry. But to go alone is not permitted to you. He leaned over the oaken baluster and whistled shrill. One cometh, he cried, and then motioned Dick to pass. At the foot of the stair, he found the guard afoot and awaiting his arrival, and when he had once more repeated his story, the commander of the post ordered four men out to accompany him to the church. Let him not slip, my lads, 
he said. Bring him to Sir Oliver on your lives. The door was then opened. One of the men took Dick by either arm. Another marched ahead with a link, and the fourth, with bent bow and the arrow on the string, brought up the rear. In this order they proceeded through the garden, under the thick darkness of the night and the scattering snow, and drew near to the dimly illuminated window of the abbey church. At the western portal, a picket of archers stood, taking what shelter they could find in the hollow of the arched doorways, and all powdered with the snow, and it was not until Dick's conductors had exchanged a word with them that they were suffered to pass forth and enter the nave of the sacred edifice. The church was doubtfully lighted by the tapers upon the great altar, and by a lamp or two that swung from the arched roof before the private chapels of the illustrious families. In the midst of the choir, the dead spy lay, his limbs piously composed upon a bier. A hurried mutter of prayer sounded along the arches. Cowled figures knelt in the stalls of the choir, and on the steps of the high altar, a priest in pontifical vestments celebrated Mass. Upon this fresh entrance, one of the cowled figures arose, and, coming down the steps which elevated the level of the choir above that of the nave, demanded from the leader of the four men what business brought him to the church. Out of respect for the service and the dead, they spoke in guarded tones, but the echoes of that huge, empty building caught up their words and hollowly repeated and repeated them along the aisles. A monk, returned Sir Oliver, for he it was, when he had heard the report of the archer. My brother, I looked not for your coming, he added, turning to young Shelton. In all civility, who are ye, and at whose instance do ye join your supplications to ours? Dick, keeping his cowl about his face, signed to Sir Oliver to move a pace or two aside from the archers, and, so soon as the priest had done so, I cannot hope to deceive you, sir, he said. My life is in your hands. Sir Oliver violently started. His stout cheeks grew pale, and for a space he went silent. Richard, he said, what brings you here? I know not, 
but I much misdoubt it is to do evil. Nevertheless, for the kindness that was, I would not willingly deliver you to harm. Ye shall sit a night beside me in the stalls. Ye shall sit there till my lord of Shoreby is married, and the party gone safe home. And if all goeth well, and ye have planned no evil, in the end ye shall go whither ye will. But if your purpose be blood, it shall return upon your head. Amen. And the priest devoutly crossed himself, and turned and louted to the altar. With that, he spoke a few words more to the soldiers, and taking Dick by the hand, led him up to the choir, and placed him in the stall beside his own, where, for more decency, the lad had instantly to kneel and appear to be busy with his devotions. His mind and his eyes, however, were continually wandering. Three of the soldiers, he observed, instead of returning to the house, had got them quietly into a point of vantage in the aisle, and he could not doubt that they had done so by Sir Oliver's command. Here, then, he was trapped. Here he must spend the night in the ghostly glimmer and shadow of the church, and looking on the pale face of him, he slew. And here, in the morning, he must see his sweetheart married to another man before his eyes. But, for all that, he obtained a command upon his mind, and built himself up in patience to await the issue. Chapter 4 In the Abbey Church In Shoreby Abbey Church, the prayers were kept up all night without cessation, now with the singing of psalms, now with the note or two upon the bell. Rutter, the spy, was nobly waked. There he lay, meanwhile, as they had arranged him, his dead hands crossed upon his bosom, his dead eyes staring on the roof, and hard by, in the stall, the lad who had slain him was waiting, in sore disquietude, the coming of the morning. Once only, in the course of the hours, Sir Oliver leaned across to his captive. Richard, he whispered, My son, if ye mean me evil, I will certify, on my soul's welfare, ye design upon an innocent man. Sinful in the eye of heaven, I do declare myself, but sinful as against you, I am not. 
neither have been ever. My father, returned Dick, in the same tone of voice. Trust me, I design nothing, but as for your innocence, I may not forget that ye cleared yourself but lamely. A man may be innocently guilty, replied the priest. He may be set blindfolded upon a mission, ignorant of his true scope. So it was with me. I did decoy your father to his death, but as heaven sees us in this sacred place, I knew not what I did. It may be, returned Dick, but see what a strange web ye have woven, that I should be, as this hour, at once your prisoner and your judge, that ye should both threaten my days and appreciate my anger. Methinks, if ye had been all your life a true man and a good priest, ye would neither thus fear nor thus detest me. And now to your prayers. I do obey you, since needs must, but I will not be burdened with your company. The priest uttered a sigh so heavy that it had almost touched the lad into some sentiment of pity, and he bowed his head upon his hands like a man borne down below a weight of care. He joined no longer in the psalms, but Dick could hear the beads rattle through his fingers and the prayers a-pattering between his teeth. Yet a little, and the grey of the morning began to struggle through the painted casements of the church, and to put to shame the glimmer of the tapers. The light slowly broadened and brightened, and presently, through the south-eastern celestiaries, a flush of rosy sunlight flickered on the walls. The storm was over. The great clouds had disturbed their snow and fled further on, and the new day was breaking on a merry winter landscape sheathed in white. A bustle of church officers followed. The bear was carried forth to the death house, and the stains of blood were cleansed from off the tiles, that no such ill-omened spectacle should disgrace the marriage of Lord Shoreby. At the same time, the very ecclesiastics who had been so dismally engaged all night began to put on mourning faces to do honour to the merrier ceremony which was about to follow. And further to announce the coming of the day, the pious of the town began to assemble and fall to prayer before their favourite shrines or wait their turn at the confessionals. Favoured by this stir, 
It was, of course, easily possible for any man to avoid the vigilance of Sir Daniel's sentries at the door, and presently Dick, looking about him wearily, caught the eye of no less of a person than Will Lawless, still in his monk's habit. The outlaw, at the same moment, recognised his leader and privily signed to him with his hand and eye. Now, Dick was far from having forgiven the old rogue his most untimely drunkenness, but he had no desire to involve him in his own predicament, and he signalled back to him, as plain as he was able, to be gone. Lawless, as though he had understood, disappeared at once behind a pillar, and Dick breathed again. What, then, was his dismay to feel himself plucked by the sleeve and to find the old robber installed beside him upon the next seat and, to all appearance, plunged in his devotions? Instantly Sir Oliver arose from his place and, gliding behind the stalls, made for the soldiers in the aisles. If the priest's suspicions had been awakened so lightly, the harm was already done, and Lawless a prisoner in the church. Move not, whispered Dick. We are in the plaguist's pass. Thanks, before all things, to thy swinishness of yestereven. When ye saw me here, so strangely seated where I have neither right nor interest. What a moraine! Could ye not smell harm and get ye gone from evil? Nay, returned Lawless, I thought ye had heard from Ellis and were here on duty. Ellis? echoed Dick. Is Ellis, then, returned? For sure replied the outlaw. He came last night and belted me sore for being in wine. So, there ye are avenged, my master. A furious man is Ellis Duckworth. He hath ridden me hot spur from Craven to prevent this marriage. And, Master Dick, ye know the way of him. Do so he will. Nay, then, returned Dick, with composure. You and I, my poor brother, are dead men, for I sit here a prisoner upon suspicion, and my neck was to answer for this very marriage that he purposeth to mar. I had a fair choice, by the rood, to lose my sweetheart or else lose my life. Well, the cast is thrown. It is to be my life. By the mass, cried Lawless, half arising. I am gone. But Dick had his hand at once upon his shoulder. My friend Lawless, sit ye still, he said. And ye have eyes 
look yonder at the corner by the chancel arch. See ye not that, even upon the motion of your rising, yon armed men are up and ready to intercept you? Yield ye, friend, ye were bold aboard ship when ye thought to die a sea death. Be bold again, now that ye are to die presently upon the gallows. Master Dick, gasped Lawless, the thing hath come upon me somewhat of the suddenness, but give me a moment till I fetch my breath again, and by the mass I will be as stout-hearted as yourself. Here is my bold fellow, returned Dick, and yet, Lawless, it goes hard against the grain with me to die. But where whining mendeth nothing, wherefore whine? Nay, that indeed, chimed Lawless, and a fig for death, at worst. It has to be done, my master, soon or late, and hanging in a good quarrel is an easy death, they say, though I could never hear of any that came back to say so. And so saying, the stout old rascal leaned back in his stool, folded his arms, and began to look around him with the greatest air of insolence and unconcern. And for the matter of that, Dick added, it is yet our best chance to keep quiet. We what not yet want Duckworth proposes. And when all is said, and if the worst befall, we may yet clear out our feet of this. Now that they ceased talking, they were aware of a very distant and thin strain of mirthful music, which steadily drew nearer, louder, and merrier. The bells in the tower began to break forth into a doubling peal, and a greater and greater concourse of people to crowd into the church, shuffling the snow from their feet, and clapping and blowing in their hands. The western door was flung wide open, showing a glimpse of sunlight, snowy street, and admitting in a great gust the shrewd air of the morning, and in short, it became plain by every sign that Lord Shoreby desired to be married very early in the day, and that the wedding train was drawing near. Some of Lord Shoreby's men now cleared a passage down the middle aisle, forcing the people back with lance stock, and just then, outside the portal, the secular musicians could be descried drawing near over the frozen snow, the fifers and trumpeters scarlet in the face with lusty blowing, the drummers and the cymbalists beating as for a wager. These, 
as they drew near the door of the sacred building, filed off on either side, and, marking time to their own vigorous music, stood stamping in the snow. As they thus opened their ranks, the leader of this noble bridal train appeared behind and between them, and such was the variety and gaiety of their attire, such the displays of silk and velvet, fur and satin, embroidery and lace, that the procession showed forth upon the snow like a flower-bed in a path or a painted window in a wall. First came the bride, a sorry sight, as pale as winter, clinging to Sir Daniel's arm, and attended, as bridesmaid, by the short young lady who had befriended Dick the night before. Close behind, in the most radiant toilet, flowered the bridegroom, halting on a gouty foot, and as he passed the threshold of the sacred building and doffed his hat, his bald head was seen to be rosy with emotion. And now came the hour of Ellis Duckworth. <laughs>